Hello and welcome to Alchemy Radio, the home of the open mind. Hopefully you're enjoying the show as we do our level best to bring you a variety of eye and ear opening guests. For quite a while now I've been talking about the changes that we're making at Alchemy Radio, a lot of back-end changes and our output is about to increase. You'll notice that next week we'll have another show and the following week again. So we're getting as close as our meagre finances allow to becoming a weekly show at the moment. So uh, thank you to everybody who has donated so far. It's not about the money, but we do need some money to stay afloat. And of course, you can donate on our page, alchemyradio.net. There's a PayPal donate button there and you can donate by credit card and subscribe as well and all that kind of thing. We're also on iTunes and our listenership is increasing every day. And you can find our Twitter page at Alchemy Radio and our Facebook page for all your feedback needs and we'd love to hear from you. So, on to the show. This week's guest is Mitch Horowitz, who is the author of One Simple Idea, How Positive Thinking Reshaped Modern Life. His previous book, Occult America, received the 2010 Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Award for Literary Excellence. Horowitz is Vice President and Editor-in-Chief at Tarsha Penguin, the division of Penguin Books dedicated to metaphysical literature. He frequently writes about and discusses alternative spirituality in the US national media, including CBS Sunday Morning, Dateline NBC, All Things Considered, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, BoingBoingTime.com and CNN.com. Mitch, it's great to have you on Alchemy Radio. You're very welcome. How are things? Things are really good. We're dealing with the same kind of biblical weather here in the the northeastern U.S. as you're dealing with in Ireland, Uh, but we're making our way through and I'm glad to be here with you. Before we delve into the topic, Mitch, tell us a little bit about your background. I suppose the question that I ask everybody, how did you get from where you were as far back as you want to go to where you are now? Well, it really started in earliest childhood. Uh, When I was growing up as a kid in the borough of Queens in New York City, I was fascinated with everything occult and esoteric. My sister would bring home paperbacks of Carlos Castaneda books, and I remember book club catalogs that were handed out in my classroom offering all kinds of titles on ESP and Bigfoot and Flying Saucers, and I was always enchanted with the occult and the esoteric, and it was really all around you in the 1970s. You know, you'd catch Twilight Zone reruns on television and talk show hosts that were popular in the U.S., like Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas, were always interviewing astrologers and robed gurus and UFO eyewitnesses and so forth. And it was a very easy time as a kid to become enchanted with the occult. And as I got older, I rediscovered those interests. And I came to feel that there was a quality of truth to some of that material buried under, to be sure, um, by a lot of fantasy, uh, by a lot of imaginary thinking. But there was a grain of truth to... Uh, the notion that there exists things in our world that are very real and very deep questions uh, and that not everything can be explained away or expected to be explained away by the material. And so I was fortunate as an adult to rediscover some of my interests uh, from childhood and I've worked for about 20 years in New Age and metaphysical publishing and about 10 years ago I came to feel that the history and the analysis of some of these subjects, the occult, the esoteric, the New Age, the metaphysical, were not really being handled uh, in the best way they could. We were losing sense of our own history. Uh, We were losing sense of where some of our ideas, like channeling, for example, came from, both in terms of the ancient roots of some of these things and their modern rebirth. And I started working as a historian in the field. And several years ago, I published my first book, Occult America, which was a history of supernatural religions in the U.S. and other parts of the West. And uh, just last month, my latest book was published called One Simple Idea, How Positive Thinking Reshaped Modern Life. I came to feel positive thinking was a movement with occult roots that really came to spread all over the world and dramatically changed modern culture in all kinds of ways, religiously, economically, politically. And so I, I, I find myself in the fortunate position as an adult of being able to reconnect with themes that were enchanting to me when I was a kid. Your book, uh, The American Guide to the Occult, was a fascinating lead-in to your current book, I think, because there are ties between that book and One Simple Idea. What are the, I suppose, the most outstanding ones for you, Mitch, as the author? Well, you know, as I began to research the march of occult movements into modern life, 
starting, say, with the occult revival that began in Europe and the United States in the late 19th century, I found that as the 20th century progressed, there was one idea above all others that came to touch and color uh, the various occult and New Age and alternative spiritual movements that were bubbling up in the Western world. And it was this belief that thoughts are causative, uh, that believing something contributes to making it a reality, to making it happen, and that our thoughts have an actual shade of influence over concrete circumstance. And I, I came to find that that notion colored not only all of the alternative spiritual movements, but many of the self-help and therapeutic movements that were bubbling up in the 20th century. There's a certain point where you start writing the history of the modern occult, and you find yourself again and again encountering that idea in different language, in different shades, in every movement. And that's really the main thesis of positive thinking, that thoughts are causative. And the positive thinking movement had its own set of roots um, to some extent in the practice of mesmerism and a cult healing method that was popular uh, in Europe in the late 1700s. Mm-hmm. It found new birth uh, in the New England states of America in the first generation of the uh, 19th century where people began experimenting with mental healing and mind cure and prayer therapy. Those were the earliest stirrings of the positive thinking idea, this notion that our thoughts have actual formative creative powers. And people experimented with it and brought their own vocabulary and names and emphases and terminology to it. But this basic idea that the mind is a force became overwhelmingly popular, not only on the alternative spiritual scene, but it seeped into the groundwater of mainstream culture. And uh, this was particularly so in the United States, but in other nations as well. And I realized at a certain point, after I had finished writing Occult America, that it was insufficient to talk about positive thinking merely as an influence on the modern scene, but that positive thinking, especially in the U.S., had become a foundation of modern life. Even people who would rush to say, you know, I don't like the secret or the power of positive thinking or any of that nonsense. I think it's all fantasy. Regardless, we all live in a world that in various degrees has been shaped by the positive thinking imperative. Um, it's colored cognitive psychology. It's colored our advertising slogans. It's colored what we expect from ourselves and from other people. It's covered every stretch of the self-help movement, of the recovery movement, of the alternative spiritual culture. And here in the U.S. and other nations as well, including uh, South Korea, many of the largest evangelical ministries are based in some variant of the positive thinking principle. Ministers, media ministers like Joel Osteen, for example, will use biblical language to drive home their points, but they will deliver sermons to millions of people on international television broadcasts basically talking about how to cultivate a success mindset, a motivational mindset. So, in a sense, positive thinking is the one religious idea that traverses the entire spiritual landscape today, ranging from the New Age to evangelical media ministries. It's just everywhere. So one can accept it, reject it, or wrestle with it, but it's necessary to come to terms with it. And I realized that this one idea, which had occult roots, and which I write about in part in my first book, it had just overtaken us. It's, it's colored almost everything. Um, it, 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 it competes for space with other equally popular religious ideas. It's not as if Christianity, for example, has lost its impulse to salvation, but it has refashioned Christianity so that many congregants, many mainstream congregants demand that their churches not only provide salvational ideas, but provide healing ideas as well, provide therapeutic ideas as well. Positive thinking has, I want to say, almost refashioned religion to become a source of practical answers rather than salvation, which is how mankind knew religion for many, many centuries. So 
it has just colored everything, and it and it has its roots in some occult movements that bubbled up out of Europe and America in the late Enlightenment era. Let's assume for a second that there is a power in positive thinking. I'm going to ask what may seem like an almost paradoxical question. Can that be negative at times? For example, if somebody decides to... Uh, to put the power of thought towards something that is, towards a goal or an aim that is negative towards another. Can these, I suppose, these energetic powers offset each other? Is that something that can manifest? Or what are your thoughts on that? Because I've often heard people talk about the power of positive thinking and then they'll turn around and they'll say, right, well, I want to use the power of my intention to um, upsurp a colleague in work or something like that, which mm-hmm. could have a, ne- a negative effect on them. What, what do you think about it, Mitch? I, I, I wrestle with that all the time, and I, I think there there is a a clear negative possibility to all of this. You know, first of all, on the most basic level, we see the effects of negative thinking, of stress, of negative emotions on our bodies all the time. Um, most everyone in the modern world accepts that there are stress-related diseases, hypertension, ulcers, uh, digestive disorders, chronic neck and back pain, unless there's something organically wrong with an individual, many of those functional diseases, it's widely acknowledged, are stress-based. Uh, that might not be the only factor. Sometimes people have a genetic proclivity towards high blood pressure, for example. But high-stress environments have been correlated for many years uh, with the presence of stress-related diseases. So we can see right there, without even getting into the metaphysical, um, that people who are prone to high stress do face uh, a physical, um, can face uh, physical dysfunction. So there's no question that, 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 that negative thoughts can have uh, an impact and do have an impact on us bodily and I, I think in other ways as well. Now getting more into the metaphysical question, if one makes the leap to accept that there is some aspect of the mind that's causative, and some people would agree that that's true psychologically. Other people, and I cover many of these folks in the book, frame positive thinking as a metaphysical practice, and I take it on those terms because it's always described itself in that way. If we, if we make that leap, uh, then the question you're asking becomes very, very pertinent. Can negative thinking do ill in the world? And I would say the answer to that question is, is yes, and I've often wrestled with that, and I've thought to myself, well, if one were to accept this movement on its own terms, what are its ethics if we agree that negative thoughts can uh, cause harm, can cause friction, can, can do violence of one kind or another to another individual? Now, I have two different views of that. Seen from one perspective, we face ethical decisions all the time. You know, an individual can be entirely materialist and dismiss out of hand that there's any metaphysical component to life and yet he or she still faces the same conundrum that we're talking about. Um, We face decisions all the time whether to lead ethical lives and the question of whether to do violence to another person uh, is constantly persistent and with us. I don't just mean physical violence but I mean the individual faces decisions all the time, whether to tell the whole truth, whether to deal honestly in matters of finance, whether to um, be civil to another person in discourse, whether it's in person, whether it's in business, whether it's over the phone. Uh, there are all kinds of ways that we can violate one another's well-being that have nothing to do with the physical, and we face those decisions all the time, all the time, whether you're jostling to get on a train or whether you're um, dealing with a, a, a neighbor who may be a source of irritation to you or whether you're dealing with a colleague at work you don't get along with, we persistently face the path of uh, reconciliation or opposition, always. And so this is an ever-present choice facing men and women. If we, and, and, and again, I think that, that, that one can be committed to a material view of life and that this ethical problem is no less severe. If you extrapolate into the metaphysical, it's the same problem, just taken on to a a greater scale. Now, one of the problems I have with the positive thinking movement as it currently exists is that I think that movement in much of its literature has 
overemphasized this idea that we live under one mental super law, that thoughts alone are the, 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 the overall lever of existence. Thoughts alone reflect the one chief or primary law that we live under. I do actually believe, and I go quite a ways down the road to examine the metaphysical thesis behind positive thinking, that there's some non-physical causative element to thought. Um, I do believe that, and we might want to discuss that later, and I, I go through a good deal of rigor in the book to uh, try to come to terms with that and describe why I think that's a valid and defensible point of view. But I don't believe that it's the only thing we live under. We live under many, many different causes and factors, including, I think, accidents. And I think that things befall us all the time, ranging from physical limitations, possibly to illness or to some mishap. And I think that the positive thinking movement has made a mistake and has kind of painted itself into an ethical corner by often promulgating the notion that we live under one overall mental super law, sometimes called the law of attraction. I think we live under many laws and forces of which the mind may be one. So the individual can misuse whatever tools are available to him, whether we look at that in material terms, psychological terms, or metaphysical terms, and it is a persistent um, risk that we can do harm or do violence to another person that we will encounter friction with other people just because we want to drive like a bull through life mm. and get what we want. Every religion, every ethical system has sought to come to terms with this and the kinds of problems that it can create. If one has a medical, metaphysical view of life, then uh, it's caused to take that all the more seriously, all the more seriously. So I do think it is a problem, but I don't think it's a problem that's unique uh, to religion or to spirituality. Um, the, the, pre the, the problem of ethical shortfalls are, are common throughout life. They extend to the material and to the metaphysical. So essentially what we're dealing with, as opposed to a singular law, such as the law of attraction, we have any number of laws that interact with each other on different levels, and depending on what that level of interaction is, a certain law has strength over another one. Have I picked that up correctly? Yes, I think that's right, and, and I think it's very, very difficult from our perspective to get a sense of what is operative when. Uh, I mean, we've been studying the placebo effect for well over 100 years in serious, rigorous clinical settings, and researchers still don't agree on precisely what the placebo effect is. We use terms all the time that we think there's consensus on, but when we start to peel back the onion, we find there's very little consensus. Um, if you ask 10 different psychologists for their definition of ego, you're likely to get 10 different answers. Uh, if you ask serious researchers their definition of the placebo effect, some will express absolute, absolute certainty that we understand what it is, and others will tell you that... Uh, well, we really have no idea. We have to keep digging. So even those areas of life that we think of as familiar uh, are actually not so familiar once we begin to dig deeper, once we begin to probe. How much further away are our abilities to understand these laws that we don't really have any grasp of at all? Um, it's very, very difficult to understand what's going on, for example, in the field of quantum physics and what's referred to as the quantum measurement problem when researchers find that uh, subatomic particles seem to occupy a multitude of places until a measurement is taken and then they settle into one place. Mm. I mean, these, th these experiments have been going on for 80 years and there's no consensus over that. So we're dealing with concepts that are very, very far away from us and that we are just at the beginning um, of, our, of our testing of, of our ability to see, to perceive anything about them at all. Uh, so I, I think that the, the forces that we live under um, present us and put us in front of very, very deep questions. Very hard to measure these things. Very hard to get perspective on these things. Sometimes the best that we can do um, through testing, through testimony, and sometimes through personal experience is just developing at least the ability to grasp that something is there, some influence is there, some force is there some agency is there, uh, but our perspective on it uh, is very narrow.
You mentioned quantum physics there, and I think as, as that field is opened up to more and more people and as we learn more about it, I think it could possibly be the case that we will discover things that would have seemed absolutely magical 10, 15, 20, 100 years ago as we have yes. done throughout history. So, for example, if we, if we say that thoughts are causative, who's to say that it can't be proven in the future or hasn't already been, but it's certainly not common knowledge, that thoughts are actually physical things. They just occupy a realm of physicality that we're not openly familiar with at this point in time. Yes, and I think that's a wonderful question. That's exactly the kind of place where I want to see people digging in responsible and canny ways. Um, we have about a hundred years of data at this point in the Western world coming out of psychical research, coming out of the study of ESP. And some of this data has been very rigorously collected, subjected to enormous scrutiny, and some of the best of it has never been overturned. And we find that there are tens of thousands of laboratory trials, for example, that will show an above-average hit rate on a deck of cards. Uh, I'm describing some experiments that began at Duke University in the 1930s. Mm. No one has any explanation for why that would be, why there would be any above-average hit rate on a deck of cards in a lab setting. Now, the critics will tell you it's a mistake, it's an error, and I go through some of this in the book, um, it's insufficient to criticize the data coming out of ESP research by insisting that all of it must be some mistake. Uh, it, it's just been subjected to too much scrutiny uh, under exquisitely careful clinical conditions to be explained away as a snafu. Uh, we've got laboratory data from the present day, some of it compiled by uh, research psychologists like Daryl Bem at Cornell or Dean Radin, a scientist at the Institute for Noetic Sciences, gathered under conditions of really great care and, and meticulousness. And they're finding, for example, instances of emotional precognition that just in a split second before an individual is shown a disturbing image, he or she might in certain instances develop uh, certain signs of bodily stress, like uh, an increased pulse or um, uh, adrenal secretions or sweat gland secretions, something like that. You know, that's really just a modern-day update of some of the card hit experiments that Dr. J.B. Ryan began at Duke University in the 1930s, which I mentioned earlier. So we have all this data that suggests to us that the mind if not in possession of some sort of physical influence, does allow for some anomalous transfer of information in a laboratory setting. So we have the question of whether there's some non-physical element to thought, and that deepens many, many questions. What conditions does that occur under? Is there something physical at work? Does it violate all our currently known laws of mechanics? There's data that comes out of the quantum physics world that for the past 80 years have been violating the mechanics that we experience in the macro world. And we don't know how to square that circle. So again, we use a phrase like the quantum measurement problem. <laughs> and scientists who are willing to analyze the data, who are willing to discuss the data at all, and some are not, uh, some say, you know, the job of the physics lab is to calculate. Others say the job of the physics lab is to probe reality. Uh, those who just want to calculate would reject the fact that there even is a quantum measurement problem, that, you know, uh, we're, not, we're not there to uh, analyze or to speculate as to the nature of reality. We're just there to measure. But those scientists who are willing to analyze data would say, yes, there are things going on in quantum physics experiments that violate normative mechanical laws, and we don't know why. So I don't want to lead anybody to jump to the conclusion that this physics data, which is only dimly understood, confirms that, the, that, that a thought or an observation by a sentient observer is a, some sort of a, a, a determining force. And I don't want to lead people to the idea that... Um, ESP must exist because of some of the experiments that I was just describing in brief, but I do want to lead them to the idea that these are very deep questions, and we should venerate these questions, and we should keep studying, keep asking, and those of us who are lay people, like myself, should know something about these fields, be able to discuss these fields in a way that's 
that's sober, that's canny, that's realistic. This isn't material to get carried away with, but it is very extraordinary material that puts us in front of very, very deep questions about the nature and possibilities of the mind. And do you think that the possibilities, Mitch, of the mind are infinite? Because we often hear many self-help gurus saying that the power comes from within you and you can do anything you want to do and be anything you want to be. And people will point to people such as, I don't know, anyone from uh, Tony Robbins to Deepak Chopra. And they'll say, on one side, people will say, well, these guys are miracle workers in that they've managed to tap into um, a power that most of us don't have or they've managed to demonstrate that we do have a power that we didn't think we had heretofore. And then you'll have the naysayers on the other side who'll say it's absolute hocus pocus, it's bunkum, it's complete and utter nonsense designed to make money for these gurus. What's your position on that side of things and those those people who are looking for maybe practical solutions in their lives for some of the more mundane issues that arise on a daily level and they might turn to self-help books or gurus or whatever it might be. Is there a value to that or what's your position overall? I do think there's a value to it. But I think that the, the individual uh, has to proceed with his or her own sense of judgment and scrutiny, very intact and careful. Um, miraculous claims uh, are usually, <laughs> um, if, 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 if something sounds too good to be true, then obviously the individual needs to use his or her own instincts and judgment. But I do think that the modern self-help field uh, in its best iterations has a lot to offer. And I do believe that we spend most of our lives undervaluing rather than overvaluing the power of self-belief. I don't think anything would be possible without self-belief. And again, we see examples of that a lot in the negative. When somebody is unable to step past a certain uh, self-perception or a certain threshold, we see a life descend into mediocrity. It happens more often than not, and it happens all the time. That said, we also have limitations on ourselves. We're not all born um, with the same inclinations or abilities. All the more important, I think, to engage in a process of really deep, sustained self-scrutiny, because if you can find that area that does suit your talents, if you can find that workplace uh, or setting where the relationships are nurturing rather than fractious, that can be an extraordinary springboard for the individual. I do think, I do believe that we undervalue the power of self-belief. I'm not worried about people getting oversold on that. I'm worried about the fact that people rarely engage in intelligent, sustained efforts to probe their own abilities and to arrive at a better and realistic self-image. Now, sometimes there are factors that are against us in that effort. Um, there are some disorders or anxieties, uh, psychological maladies that we suffer from that are very difficult to get our arms around. They have a physical component. We speak of temperament. That's another word that we use, like ego, you know, and we think we know what, what temperament means. And people are born with certain proclivities. One person may be more outgoing. One person may be more shy. And as a parent of two boys, I can speak for the experience, I think, of many parents where parents will see personalities in their kids, sometimes almost right out of the womb. We do seem to come into this world um, with a temperamental nature, and that, that can be helpful in some ways, that can be disabling in other ways. So there can be tough odds stacked against us in trying to assess and size up our strengths, our needs, our abilities, and then hand-in-hand hand with that self-inventory coming to a better sense of self, a better uh, a, a higher and realistic self-belief. But I, I really do believe, I really do believe that people are disabled by poor self-image more than any other single factor. There are lots of other factors that run through our lives. But the individual who embarks on a journey to probe his or her true wants and needs and to try to reach a higher sense of self that's something I want to encourage. I, I think we, 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 we commonly 
underestimate the power of enthusiasm, the power of realistic self-belief, and what that can do for an individual's abilities. It can objectively change a person's whole life. Uh, it's not the only thing they need. Uh, we need to execute things well. We need skills and abilities. We need to be matched to a task that we can get our arms around. But as the philosopher William James observed, when a person's in a situation where they need to leap a chasm, where they have no choice, self-belief is absolutely necessary in that instance, and its absence will almost guarantee disaster. So uh, I believe in the best of what's going on in the self-help field today. And I think the point you make there at the end is very, very pertinent. I remember when I was first approaching this subject a number of years ago, and I was quite sceptical, and I thought, hang on a minute, how can I just think something and something becomes more possible than if I don't think it? But when you approach a thought, and for anybody listening has a look around, and they might be in a house, they might be in a car, whatever it is listening, where would that house be without a thought? If somebody hadn't dreamt up or thought of that house and how to put it together or a team of people or whatever, it all began with thoughts. And if those thoughts didn't exist, well, then the house can't exist or the car can't exist or whatever physical entity that you decide to focus on, it can't exist. And I think that I, I discovered that that is true in my own life as well. So if I create a mental obstacle or a blockage point and I decide, well, I can't do something, well, that has to absolutely be true. And the inverse yes. of that then is, well, if I allow myself to believe that something can be true, well, then of course it can. And while I might need to pull some other factors in around that thought, some physical factors, and I might need to work hard at something, if I don't believe in myself and in that thought in the first instant, it's an absolutely insurmountable task to traverse that blockage. Yes, I, I agree with that entirely. And, you know, some people will complain, and quite rightly, that there are people who are overconfident to the point of delusion. There are people who seem to believe in themselves in some way that, that, that seems absolutely self-delusive. Mm. And they find that to be a great contradiction in this whole idea. There are some people who feel like the quest for self-belief or uh, greater self-regard leads people in the direction of fantasy or raises their expectations in some unrealistic way. And those are valid concerns. One of the things I point out in the book is that there's always one telltale measure for determining whether confidence is based in a healthful, realistic self-image or whether it's fantasy, uh, whether it's just a kind of inflated arrogance that leads a person into a direction of, of delusion, which is bound to end in some kind of disappointment. And I think the one telltale test is this. When people are in possession of true self-belief, they are able to leave other people alone. When a person is in possession of an inflated, arrogant, unrealistic self-belief, they're constantly taxing and making demands on other people. They're constantly asking for things from other people. They're looking to other people to prop up their self-image, to do things for them, to give them a sense of security, to recognize them. And when you look at a person who seems to be outwardly confident, who seems unable to just simply leave others alone, who's always making demands on other people, always taxing the resources and the time of other people, that's where counterfeit confidence can be detected. Uh, the, the healthfully self-believing person usually has a measure of independence and the person who has developed a kind of delusive arrogance or who is masking some sort of insecurity through the appearance of a bold personality is usually a persistent drain on other people and on their resources. That's usually the dividing line we can watch for in other people and in ourselves as to whether uh, self-belief is, is, is of the healthful variety or whether it's just become kind of a sham and a cover. And something that people have often said to me in the past is, well, you believe in positive thought and you think it's a, it's a good thing or whatever, but... There are so many people suffering in the world. Have they brought it upon themselves? So, for example, if they're starving in the middle of a famine somewhere, is that the person who's suffering's fault? Or if they're in the middle of a disaster, there's an earthquake, for example, is that the fault of the people who reside there? Have they brought it upon themselves in some way? 
Right. I critique that in the book, and I really think that's one of the areas where the positive thinking movement needs to grow up. It's very, very important to acknowledge there's a multitude of forces that we live under, and if somebody lives on an earthquake fault, they might get hurt, and that they are not to blame for that. If someone falls ill, there are all kinds of different factors that contribute to that, and whether they recover, whether they do not recover, whatever it is that they experience physically uh, is the result of many different factors, and there is absolutely no self-blame whatsoever in that. In fact, um, I think that you know that's one of the areas where I criticize the book and the movie The Secret. I don't sort of like to jump on the bandwagon against The Secret because... So many people seem to criticize it and dump on it. You know, you could be given to wonder, did anybody ever like this to begin with? And obviously there are millions of people uh, who have watched the movie and bought the books and so on. And I do think it's helped some people to expand their self-conceptions. But at the same time, I am critical of Rhonda Byrne because I think she has promulgated the idea of a law of attraction and and a radical self-responsibility that makes the victim ultimately responsible for, as she would put it, vibrating on the same thought level as the events. I disagree with that. I simply disagree with that. Uh, We live under many laws and forces, including laws of accident, happenstance, physical limitation. Uh, Mortality alone is evidence of that. And I think that, that, that we live under such a multitude of forces that the best one can do is, uh, try to very carefully observe situations and circumstances in one's own life, but to try to analyze things that happen to another person in another culture or even a person living next door uh, and try to figure out a perspective on what's happened to that person, often that amounts to a little more than just kind of throwing a stone. You know, we we need to be concerned with observing ourselves, with trying to understand our own life, just to just to get a glimmer of insight into my own experience can be extraordinary enough. But to try to understand the dynamics of a disaster or an illness that's befallen someone else, somewhere else, you know, it, it just becomes spinning out this endless ball of yarn. It gets very ponderous. I don't think we have proper perspective. But I do believe that the positive thinking movement will never be fully ethically serious and defensible as a movement until it decisively breaks with this idea of one overarching law of attraction. Because we live under forces and influences in the world that we just don't have a handle on at all. Uh, all we can do is know that they exist in great multitude. I think thought is one of those, um, but it's not necessarily the decisive factor in every given situation. Laws are tricky, and they wax and wane in dramatic ways depending on situations that we find ourselves in. We speak of the law of gravity as uh, being a a consistent physical law, and it surely is. But the experience of gravity is much different if one lives on the moon than if one lives on Earth. Um, In the vacuum of space, you won't experience gravity at all, although obviously it becomes much different when you're on a massive planet uh, or dealing with a star. So... The nature of laws can be so dramatically different, um, even when we think we have an understanding of them, like a physical force such as gravity. How much more complex is it to talk about the laws of the mind? Um, I do think something is there, but we must be very careful and, and, and step very gently and be very sensitive uh, when trying to determine um, that something has been a result or, or an outgrowth of this massive idea that that the mind contributes to our circumstance. Another criticism that's often bandied about is when people touch on the quite sensitive subject of health and many, many people, um, I think increasingly so, are kind of they're, they're losing faith in big pharma and in some of the methods used to treat very serious illnesses as well as um, less serious illnesses. And they're putting more and more faith in the power of the mind and in more holistic approaches to healing. And quite often I hear the criticism that, well, this is complete hocus pocus again and that it's a very, very dangerous practice by people when they decide that they're going to put faith in their own mind and they're going to eschew the conventional methods of healing. 
how would you approach that question? Or if somebody said that to you, Mitch, w- would it be a case of, well, one is right and the other is wrong? Or is there a middle ground when it comes to these sensitive subjects? Because we could talk about, for example, uh, the material side of things and how, yeah, we can use the law of attraction to manifest a fancy car or a big house or whatever. But I think for a lot of people, they're not necessarily interested in that. They're, they're more interested in how they can help themselves when it comes to body as well as mind. I do believe very strongly that there's a middle ground, and I think we face, we can face very tough odds and great difficulties in this life, and I do believe that the individual should use every possibility that is available, uh, whether that's psychopharmacology, whether that is mainstream allopathic medicine, as well as complementary methods of medicine. I don't see any reason why an individual should not draw upon as many resources as are possible. Prayer, meditation, stress reduction, exercise, alternative modalities, eastern modalities of medicine, I don't see any reason why those can't be married um, to western allopathic medicine, including in the area of psychopharmacology. I know a psychiatrist who um, prescribes psychopharmacological drugs to people all the time. He also recommends that they learn transcendental meditation. I, 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 don't, I think that these walls and barriers we create um, between one modality and another can really be artificial, and I, I would encourage every individual to proceed um, with every possibility that, that, that he or she believes is helpful. I think that's, that's very wise advice indeed, and I think quite a lot of people have a tendency to put themselves in one camp or the other. Or There's a division quite often when any kind of a movement springs up and it's for or against and people see things in black and white, when there is always a massive grey area in the middle, I think, in anything. So let's talk about some of the methods that people have used to apply positive thinking within, such as, I don't know, maybe hypnotism or neuro-linguistic programming or methods like that. The values of them, Mitch, and how different people who have developed different methods have used this this one simple idea that you talk about because they all seem to be based on this one simple idea. Yes. One of the methods that I came to like um, was uh, promulgated by a, a Chicago advertising man and salesman uh, in the 1920s named Roy Herbert Jarrett. He wrote a tiny little 28-page pamphlet called It Works. I recommend it all the time. It's very easy to find. And in this little pamphlet of his, he gave people this exercise that's so simple, it's easy to dismiss, but I encourage people to try it. He suggested that you sit down and you, you write out a list of your desires and you, you keep refining and editing and refocusing the list until you're really sure that you've got it right. What is it that you really want to achieve in life? Where do you want to be? Whose company do you want to be in? And then he encourages the reader to look at the list, study the list three times a day, morning, midday, and night, and tell no one about it. Tell no one about it. And those are his three steps. They're so simple that they're easy for any serious, sensitive person to dismiss. But remarkable things can happen when you embark on this exercise if you do it in a sustained and serious way. Because we tell ourselves all the time that we know what we want. We tell ourselves constantly, this is where I want to live, this is what I want to do. But when we actually have to prioritize and organize and commit those things to writing, we may be surprised. Wrinkles start to appear. We start to peel back the onion a little bit on our own psyche, and we start to discover that we may have wants and desires that we didn't perceive before. Uh, There may be values that we hold that we've never acknowledged to ourselves. Uh, There may be things that we're told we're supposed to want that, in fact, we don't want at all. And that list-building exercise, uh, if one keeps at it in a mature way, can be revealing. And his belief was that once you actually whittled whittled that list down, he viewed that the, the, the mind in all kinds of ways is almost a sort of homing device. And as soon as we know what we really want, and we've been really sustainably honest with ourselves about it, the mind starts to move us in that direction. And he encourages talking to no one about it because he felt that sometimes when we speak to friends or colleagues, even people we trust, about some of our most intimate aims or goals or desires, Uh, they might poo-poo them, they might ridicule them, they might put them down. So this little three-part exercise, so simple that it's easy to dismiss, is one of these ideas that can run a lot deeper uh, than it would first appear, but 
Our only way of knowing that is to experience it. So I'm always encouraging people to try something that they might think is easily dismissible um, because the very act of trying can reveal something about the exercise and about ourselves that wouldn't necessarily be apparent from the description itself. So that's one exercise I grew very um, attracted to. And it can be found in this little 28-page pamphlet called It Works. I find that absolutely fascinating because I'm a big believer through my own experience as well in the journey as opposed to always the end goal. We always focus on the end goal, but I think if we examine the journey towards the end goal, whether we make it or not, I think that's where we learn the real lessons in life and that's where we discover quite a lot about ourselves. And I think as time has gone on in my own life, that that has certainly rung true. And I think we can all apply those simple lessons. I think it's very valuable knowledge you've imparted there indeed. So thank you. There's... There's obviously a big tendency towards, I hesitate to use the term new age thinking, but let's just say towards positive thinking in the mainstream media now. And it has become a mainstream topic and it's discussed every day of the week in various newspapers and on TV. And it's not so much an esoteric or an occult focus anymore. So how did that happen and when did it happen, Mitch? Because this is something that fascinates me. How does something go from uh, the subcultural side of things into the mainstream and in such a big way? Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, it it so happened in this country, in the U.S., uh, church attendance began to decline in the 1920s and 1930s. And at the same time, there was an enormous growth of some of this positive thinking literature of the spiritual variety uh, in bookstores, through correspondence courses, uh, through lectures, through adult education classes. And people from mainstream religious faiths began to hear about the positive thinking thesis more and more. And there were also programs that occurred within the mainstream that began to popularize the idea uh, that our minds have some causative agency. Um, For example, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, there was a program called the Emmanuel Movement uh, that was uh, part of the Episcopal Church where ministers were using prayer therapy, Um, auto-suggestion, hypnotism, meditation, support groups to try to treat illness. And they were very scrupulous about it. They were treating functional illnesses that were thought to be stress-based. They were doing this hand-in-hand with physicians. They were um, specifically uh, saying that, that, that anybody who came to the Emmanuel Movement, which was based in Boston, um, to participate in these prayer therapy sessions, these support group settings, uh, needed to be referred by a physician, that they weren't trying to replace standard mainstream medical care. Um, and this movement, um, which which was quite popular in the first couple of decades of the 20th century, received a tremendous amount of media coverage. Uh, Some of the largest magazines in the U.S. and other parts of the world wrote about the positive results people were getting out of this prayer therapy movement. And that, too, began to affect people. People heard about it. In 1939, the book Alcoholics Anonymous was published for the first time. And that, too, was a a kind of mental, therapeutic, spiritual program to addiction recovery. Uh, The idea was that uh, the mind itself could prime a person for an awakening experience, a conversion experience, that the opening of the mind, according to certain very basic steps, uh, could enlist spiritual aid in the process of addiction recovery. So there were these touchstones where people began to hear more and more about the possibilities of using the mind to heal or to produce results. Sigmund Freud was never a fan or an admirer of any of this. In fact, he disparaged the Emmanuel movement in an interview uh, that he gave to a Boston newspaper when he was visiting the United States for the first and only time. However, when people heard about Freudian psychology for the first time and the presence of an unconscious or subconscious mind, that too built their belief that the mind has layers that we've never discovered. The mind has possibilities. The mind is a causative factor in our outer behavior in ways that we might not have understood. So all these different factors contributed to the idea, really one of the prime ideas of modern life, that our outer actions have unseen interior antecedents, that our minds are like icebergs, 
and that what we see on the surface is only the merest tip of what's really going on. And all these factors bolstered in people's minds the idea that our thoughts are a vast ocean of influence that we haven't fully come to terms with. And there were many popular expressions of this idea that didn't make reference to any kind of mystical language or magical movements, didn't use magical terminology. In 1956, there was a very popular vinyl album recorded in this country called The Strangest Secret by a radio announcer and advertising man named Earl Nightingale, who I admired very much. And Nightingale made the case that he had searched his whole life for the reason why some people get ahead and others fail. And he came to believe it came down to a six-word formula. We become what we think about. Now, I think that Nightingale's formula needs to be leavened by a lot of other ideas. There are people who face all kinds of problems economic disadvantages, physical limitations that also determine what they become. But nonetheless, nonetheless, Nightingale very persuasively argued for this idea that self-belief is a tremendous factor and an under-recognized factor in what befalls a person. That sounds fairly ordinary to us today, but in 1956, that still struck people as a very radical message. So these Different variants of the positive thinking thesis began to bubble up into the public consciousness. Some of them were more secular, like the work of Earl Nightingale. Others were more oriented and geared toward the mainstream church-going public. Norman Vincent Peale's 1952 book, The Power of Positive Thinking, put the phrase positive thinking into every household. Peale was a conservative Methodist minister. He read deeply into different mystical and metaphysical philosophies. He came to believe in the positive thinking thesis, and Peel came to feel that if it's true, it must also be in the Bible. So he poured over scripture to try to find validation of this idea that man's thoughts, man's self-belief, have causative powers, have a spiritual power at their back. And he believed he found it, and he, in a sense, recreated the whole positive thinking thesis in the form of Christian language and scriptural references in his book, The Power of Positive Thinking. That was a book that you could find in just about every household in America at one time. So people tended to take the positive thinking thesis, refashion it for appeal, either within the secular culture or within the culture of mainline Christianity, and at least in this country, the public never looked back. Very large numbers of the public were willing to sign on to this idea. It seemed to tap something very deep in people that they were primed to believe, that they wanted to believe, that made some sort of innate sense to large numbers of people. And the culture hasn't been the same since. And do you think it's the case that people had this kind of innate sense of this was something that fit rather than being given to an extreme of, I don't know, religion or materialism, as quite a lot of us are in the Western world? People, it tapped what people wanted to believe about themselves. It tapped experiences that a lot of people thought they had. It gave people a set of tools that they felt they could enact in their own lives, in private, without telling anybody, without having to join anything, without having to leave the church of their family or their childhood. It, it, it was this splendid do-it-yourself movement, which has always had great appeal for Westerners in general, and probably Americans in particular. Americans love the do-it-yourself approach, and the notion that you could use certain exercises, prayer, affirmations, visualization, list-making, various psychological exercises, to try to recondition your mind was very exciting to people, because you could do it in private, you could start it that morning, you could carry your affirmations or your list with you in your pocket. These things were very powerful to people. They gave people the feeling that they weren't just at the mercy of every whim and wind that life blew at them, but that there was something that they might be able to use, some tool in their belt that they might be able to deploy to help manage what was coming at them on the field of life. And 
to be honest with you, I think their instinct was correct. I, 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 I spent a lot of time describing how I think this can be taken too far and how we must understand that we live under multiple laws and forces, but I think the basic appeal that this movement had for everyday men and women was a valid appeal. I think they were picking up on something that was very valuable, and and they rightly assessed the the worth of a set of psychological and spiritual ideas that the individual could experiment with in private, could experiment with on his or her own. You don't have to join anything. You don't have to talk to anybody about it. You don't have to give money anywhere. You don't have to declare your fealty to something. You don't have to put a label on yourself. It's just an experiment. And I think that tapped into something very real and very valid for a lot of people. And if you were to give one piece of advice then to somebody who's approaching this thought process for the first time or might not have been aware of the notion of positive thinking in any real sense, what would it be? How would they jump onto the bandwagon? And I use that term reservedly, I'm being a bit flippant there, but how how would they begin their own learning process and their own journey? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Uh, I would say, first of all, use your own gut instinct for where you want to enter. You, you might have a feel for a certain piece of literature, a certain individual, a certain program that seems sound to you. Seek out soundness, first and foremost. Seek out those voices, those authors, those figures, whether living or dead, who seem to you to be a good mirror of your values, your personal style. Trust yourself. You wouldn't buy a car or a house from somebody who you didn't feel had a certain soundness about them. Trust yourself. Use your own instincts. Use your own ethics. Choose a program or a book or a thought system that you feel has a certain degree of good weight to it, a certain degree of ethical orientation to it. You might start with Norman Vincent Peale's book, The Power of Positive Thinking. Uh, That book does have uh, a greater Christian tone than some people expect. There are some people in the New Age culture who decide to read Norman Vincent Peale, and they're quite surprised by how scriptural in nature that book is. You might start with a little pamphlet like It Works, which I mentioned. That author, Roy Herbert Jarrett, was a very ethical man who struggled with some of the ethical conundrums of positive thinking. He wrote one additional book called The Meaning of the Mark, where he explored his ideas more fully. You might listen to The Strangest Secret by Earl Nightingale. Very easy to find on YouTube. It can be downloaded, listened to almost anywhere. It's a short 35-minute lecture. You can put in a pair of earbuds and listen to it during your lunch hour. There are many places to enter. You don't have to talk to anybody about it. You don't have to submit this to the approval of your friends or workmates or peers or colleagues. They might roll their eyes at you, but that's the beauty of it. It's your choice. It's just something to experiment with it. And... I love the words, try it. Just try it. Don't make any changes in your outer life. Don't, you don't have to change your relationships, your workplace. You don't have to rearrange anything physically, financially, domestically. Just try it. Just sit down, identify values that are sacred, that are important to you, that are worthwhile to you, goals and aims, and experiment with using thought, using a, a, a kind of system of self-belief, which sometimes involves getting in touch with emotions that an individual doesn't know he or she has, emotions around money that might change our perceptions in some ways. These are just things to experiment with. Uh, I think the greatest gift that we have, uh, those of us who live in democracies in the modern world, is that the individual pursuit of meaning is protected, um, in some cases even venerated. So use that pursuit of meaning for yourself to explore some of these positive thinking ideas. See what resonates with you. See what rings true to you. Don't go rearranging the deck furniture. There's nothing to do in outer life, uh, and there's no one to tell if you don't feel like it. Uh, These are mental experiments that an individual can try him or herself and see what transpires. I think it's one of the most wonderful things available to us to just sit down in private Uh, using our perceptions of the world, using our minds, and seeing uh, what transpires. It can be one of the most rewarding experiments an individual ever embarks on. 
The book is One Simple Idea, How Positive Thinking Reshaped Modern Life. Mitch, how can people get their hands on it? And tell us a bit about your website and how people can find out more about you as well as an author. I'm easy to find. Just put my name into Google or any search engine. It's Mitch Horowitz. Horowitz is H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z. My book, One Simple Idea, How Positive Thinking Reshaped Modern Life, can be found through any bookseller. Um, You can find it through an independent uh, uh, website, independent retail sites, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, whatever you like. Uh, It's available digitally. I've narrated an audio edition of it. It's published by Crown. Um, You can download the digital edition. You can download the audio edition or find the physical edition, and it's available everywhere. I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Mitch Horowitz, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you on Alchemy Radio today. Thank you so much for joining me and I look forward to speaking again in the future. Thank you, I've really enjoyed it. Alchemy Radio. Like a living a bubble with no trouble and problems don't exist. I check on the other, that ain't the case at all. It goes back to the time when I was very small. I didn't mind, but size and age, my papa used to say. You can always look at the negative, but you should always live in the positive. So I try every day to live in that way. What is and how much they can And be the first to complain about nothing And life going their way The attitude's there that I can't do nothing about And very happy with just breathing in and out The ones that when you say let's go make a difference They'll say nah that's okay So I don't waste time on the trip side Cause I do know the real on the flip side And I'm crystal clear every day That's why I From within 75% of what we read here in you. Well, I used to have a friend named Minnie Ripperton who used to always say when she was living, like fine wine and like seeing the glass of life is half full and half empty. I'm not saying sometimes life can be rough, but never to the point of me saying I've had enough. Long as my heart beats, I'm giving up. That's why I say every day, yeah. Tomorrow in the human plan Is it possible for all people of the world To coexist I say unity is only as big as our vision And it must now strive to expand beyond the horizon But truly there's misguided through the ears of society That stand in our way So if the road is to harmony Be with the call But if it's about discord Don't take the ride at all Cause the world vision I see is the one We for everybody
I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy Radio. Remember, we're relying on your donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format. And we're extremely grateful for all the help that you can offer. We've no fixed cost on our donations and every little helps. So, for example, as I like to quote, if you could spare even the price of a cup of coffee every month, this would go a long way towards keeping us afloat. Our donate button is on the website, as is a subscribe button, and assistance and support is hugely appreciated. Indeed, thank you to everybody who has donated over the last few weeks. Next week's guest is Raymond Whitehead, who is the founder of a brand new political party in Ireland called Direct Democracy, based on the Swiss model of direct democracy, and indeed with many nods towards the current Icelandic model that is working so successfully for the small European country. It promises to be a fascinating discussion and hopefully you can tune in then. Until then, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze. Alchemy Radio. Conceive. Alchemy Radio. Believe. Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in?